Well, we're in the midst of a, a summer series from First Peter that we started a few weeks ago, and um, it's called The Good Life. And living the good life is how followers of Jesus live in a world that's often feels like it's going the other way from God. And last week we defined, well, what is the good life? And this comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And the good life is the life that we find in relationship with Jesus. It's also the life that God has always intended us to live. It's filled with love, joy, peace, contentment, purpose, adventure. It's filled with meaningful relationships among our family and friends and even our community. And the good life is a life that starts right now. It's not something that we wait for in the great by and by, but it will continue when we meet Jesus again. In living the good life, Peter pointed out some important practical things for us that we should know. The good life will likely put us all at odds with the world because he's talking about how Christians live in a world that is often very non-Christian or seems like it's moving away from God rather than closer to God. And so by choosing to live the good life in relationship with Christ, it's going to require a certain mindset of knowing who we are and our place. It'll put us at odds with the world and make us feel like we stick out. The good life is also a virtuous life. It's full of holiness and integrity. It's loving God and our neighbors. But most of all, there's a principle for Christians to practice in learning to live this good life in a non-Christian world. And so Peter starts to, to lay these out in chapter 2. And it begins last week. We talked about abstaining from evil desires or sinful desires. Peter talks practically about living good lives full of good, lead, good deeds uh, to, in the world around us. And this week, he's going to continue on in chapter 2, teaching us how to apply this good life principle out there, where the life of faith or our life of faith in the world, uh, sometimes it feels like they collide, but it's where they meet and I really wish this week, I, I was like, man, I should have said last week, hey, read ahead in chapter two, and I just didn't do it. Um, but it would have been really helpful to prepare all of us for the topic that we're going to encounter this week. Um, otherwise, it's going to kind of feel a little bit out of left field. See, a couple weeks ago, I was discussing this like how we're going to do this sermon series through the summer with Matt Randalls and with Phil. And um, it just so happens that I'm going to be on vacation next week when we arrive in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, I couldn't have planned this out better. It just kind of happened. But like I, I could have purposely done it because next week, Matt gets to preach about wives and husbands. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to conveniently be gone. So Matt can say whatever he wants and I will you know, deny, deny, deny that that ever happened. Uh, while I wasn't here. Unfortunately, when we had this conversation, it was before I'd really kind of honed in on the text. You know, it, it was just like, okay, that's chapter three, that's where that falls. And then, then I took a look at what leads up to chapter three. It's about a Christian's relationship with the government. And if that wasn't bad enough, it also talks about slavery. It's probably good. I'm going to be gone for a couple weeks. Just going to leave town. Phil gets to pick up all the pieces on July 30th. Um, but nervous laughter aside, this 
section of scripture that we're going to go through today, um, man, there is there has been train wrecks of interpretation of this by Christians through the years, and uh, good people have suffered unjustly for it. And then at the same time, when you read this passage, there's also, especially on the the government piece, there's lots of good. Um, great Christians that have kind of taken different paths on how to apply this. And so um, there's lots of room for conversation. My goal here this morning is to be faithful to God's word, to have integrity with how I interpret it. But also, this is really kind of a master's level class from one of Jesus' disciples on how Christians realistically live in a world that seems to be moving away from God. So as we begin, I want to spend a few minutes just talking about a very, I'm going to actually spend quite a while talking about the historical context of the situation, something that I, because if you don't understand the contours of the people and the situation here, you end up with how I would say very, I don't know if they're weird, but you end up with interpretations that maybe aren't faithful to the text. And so you, you really kind of have to understand the world that Peter is communicating inside. And so in verse 13, Peter begins instructing Christians to submit. And the first thing he says, we'll put this on the screen, he says, submit yourself to every human authority for the Lord's sake, for it to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors, dot, 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 he continues. And then he begins to address specific groups of people in what scholars call a household code. And this begins in verse 18, chapter 2, 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Then in chapter 3, verses 1, Matt will illumine for us, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And then finally in 3, 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate of your wives. And it goes on to elaborate on that. So a household code was something fairly common in the ancient world. Lots of Philosophers and teachers and people taught household codes. And this was a form of moral teaching, really, for society. It was meant to help define relationships in the home and also in the community that inspired good behavior. We might compare this today to TV commercials that are encouraging us to do things, you know, like get out there and vote. You know, this is what good people, good citizens do. Or, or volunteer, or whatever it might be. The, the corollary to those kind of public service announcements to inspire good behavior would have been household codes at the time of, of Peter, right here. And so Christians would have expected one of these codes coming from their teachers. And in the New Testament, Peter and Paul write household codes. We see them in Ephesians, we see them in Colossians, we see them in Titus, and we see them right here in 1 Peter. And so for Peter and Paul, their concern 
was how Christians treated one another, both in the church, in the family of God, but also in their families at home. And so they wanted to give them some instruction. Um, if you were to compare these to, to other codes, you know, non-Christian at the, at the time of Peter and Paul here, if you were to compare them, you would see some noticeable differences. And you need to understand this, okay? The Bible has taken a lot of flack, especially in modern times, for perpetuating the status quo, especially when we talk about something like slavery. And so the criticism goes that the Bible didn't condemn this practice like it should have. And instead, it just tacitly endorsed it. And there's been lots of bad things that have used the Bible to justify that behavior ever since. But before you judge a 2,000-year-old document by modern criteria, there's a few things you and I should know. The first one is this. It's who's addressed in Peter's household code, also Paul. Slaves were like never, ever addressed in non-Christian codes. You see, in the Roman world, slaves were not legally full persons. They were property. And therefore had no, no moral responsibility except to obey their masters. Secondly, uh, and, and so the difference there is that for Peter and Paul to actually address them, is to elevate them to status of full personhood. Because, as Paul pointed out, there is no Jew, nor Greek, male, female, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian. I mean, there's no, we are one in Christ, just like the song we were singing about unity. There's no distinctions there. And another really, so, so they actually, by addressing the slaves, they're actually elevating their status. Second thing, it's how family members are addressed. In the secular world, the father or the man of the house was considered king, basically, king of his house. He had ultimate power and authority within his four walls. So for Christian writers to tell masters, fathers, husbands to love, to be considerate, to respect people in their home was completely unexpected because they could do whatever they want. And so by addressing the fathers, the husbands, the masters, the men in these patriarchal households, this was very, very, very revolutionary. Further, Peter expands his code to include a follower of Christ's relationship, not just within the home, but outside the home, to the government. And eventually he'll talk about the Christian's relationship within the church, the people of God. So there's a very, very good reason why Peter does that here in this letter. And that's because of the situation that people faced. You see, if we look at the contour of the situation, it's apparent that Christians had a public relations crisis. Public opinion at that time said that they were a threat to society. They were undermining public order. They also didn't support traditional family values. And undermining public order seems like something pretty far-fetched, but the locals accused them of being unpatriotic. 
See, Christians didn't pay proper homage to the emperor, proper homage to the gods at local ceremonies. Uh, the worst that they did is they spoke of a Lord Jesus, while every good and smart Roman knows there's only one Lord. His name is Caesar. So I, I mean, just playing with fire right there, unpatriotic. The other thing that Christians didn't do is support traditional family values because they refused to worship family deities. So imagine yourself as the patriarch of this large Roman family and your wife or one of your slaves becomes a Christian and they immediately stop praying to your family gods. How would you feel? You'd be pretty ticked. Who are these Christians? You ask around town and you hear some pretty nasty rumors. They're murderers. They practice incest and cannibalism. Huh? Yeah. You know what goes on behind these closed door Christian meetings? They have love feasts. They call each other brother and sister. And they claim, they speak of eating the body and drinking the blood of their Christ. If you were a pagan father living at this time period, you wouldn't give anyone the benefit of the doubt. You would just say, you're never going to one of those meetings again. So Peter is trying to thread the needle here to a group of people who probably are uh, mostly comprised of women, wives, and also slaves in that little Christian community who would have had no power uh, and would have been very vulnerable in their society. So this is a very real issue that Peter's responding to. He's basically telling them to mind their P's and Q's. And so this is the situation, the people in which Peter's words are addressed, that we need to consider when we make application to our day. So to just kind of hit on that again, how can Christians live in a non-Christian world? Peter starts laying it out, abstain from sinful desires, live good lives full of good de deeds, this glorifies God. And when you're living in your community and in your homes, here's also some things to keep in mind. Live the good life in relationship to the government. Peter says in verse 13 through 17, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to the governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Submit yourselves. Submit yourselves to every human authority, for the Lord's sake. That's just what all of us want to hear, right? Submit. Especially in our society that values our culture of personal rights and our individual personhood. Being subject, as some translations say, or to accept the authority of the government, as others say, just kind of chafes, does it not? Eugene Peterson in the message translation, I, I think, says this best. The phrase that kind of encapsulates, encapsulates that, those whole four verses is this. He's like, make the master proud by being a good citizen. 
Make the master proud by being a good citizen. We clear on that? It's gonna, it's gonna move on. I, I mean, up until like two years ago, three years ago, right? All of us would have been like, oh, yeah, be subject to every human authority. Honor the emperor. So in our day, you know, we're like, I guess we honor the president, right? I mean, there's, that's just straightforward, nothing confusing, no gray area there about how I might live as a Christian. But then three years ago happened, right? And then all of us started thinking, well, is there a point at which we don't submit to our government or our leaders any longer? I mean, what if the government was unjust? What if the government was evil? I mean, what does that even look like? And I bet all of us would have thought, you know, oh, an unjust and evil government. I mean, that's like what? North Korea, right? Well, as long as, as, long as our, my government doesn't cross that line, I'm good. Or, or, or you know, maybe China, or Russia, or you know, the totalitarian governments. That's, that's crossing the line. But Peter doesn't make those qualifications, does he? He just says, submit for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Whether to the emperor, that's the federal or the governors, that's the local, submit. Surely Peter doesn't mean all, right? Well, in this day and age, I mean in, in Peter's day, most scholars believe that this was written during the reign of a Caesar named Nero. Does anybody remember from their history class who Nero was? He was one of the worst, most incompetent, unjust, bloodthirsty Roman emperors that ever lived. And it just so happens that there was a really terrible fire in Rome. This is like 65 AD. And he needed a scapegoat. And so he found these Christians because they were real unpopular. Remember, unpatriotic, undermining, everything. let's get rid of them. So uh, they made human torches out of Christians. They fed them to wild animals in the Colosseum. They crucified them. Not a real good time. In fact, Paul and Peter both probably died during these persecutions. So for Peter to say, Submit to any human authority. I mean, he's asking Christians to submit even during extreme situations. You know, the government is a good thing. God is a God of, of order. And at several points in the Bible, Numbers 12, Exodus 22, Titus 3, Romans 13, it actually points out that human governments derive their authority from God, and that we as God's people should respect our leaders, even if they're named Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George Bush, just to name a few of our most recent ones. Show proper respect to everyone. And there's something Peter wants every Christian to understand 
in our relationship to governing authorities. It's in verse 13, the first couple words. It's for the Lord's sake. We are good citizens because we're obedient to the Lord, not because we're obedient to whatever governing state we may live under. And some notable biblical examples of this are when Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Or when the Apostle Paul tells believers to pay their taxes. Or when Peter says right here, be a good citizen. It means to live under and uphold the law and order of the land. It means to attempt to add to our community life and well-being of those around us. But we can't ever forget that our allegiance to the government is always secondary to obeying God. Peter makes that clear throughout this letter. It's always secondary to obeying God and doing his will. So if you're wondering where the line is or if there's a line, then I would say being a good citizen doesn't mean total obedience to the state. But man, Christians have messed this up over and over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout history. You just start lining up the examples of, oh, yep, they missed that. Oh, they were too submissive here to the government. They didn't stand too comfortable here. Not, you know, not comfortable, not, I don't know, or, or too belligerent here. I mean, this is tough. And we're good citizens because we're obedient to the Lord first. And if we find ourselves in a position where we have to choose between doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord and doing what's right in the eyes of the state, then we choose the Lord. And this assumes some really prayerful discernment surrounded by very wise Christian counsel. I, I'm not, I mean, after the last couple years, I'm not really sure. I mean, in the Bible, we have prophets like Daniel, who twice tell, you know, first he's supposed to eat the food of the king, and he's like, nope, I'm going to eat vegetables. And then they tell him not to pray, and he's like, I'm going to pray, and he ends up in a lion's den. But he's Daniel. He's in the Bible. There's been lots of Christians throughout the years who have prayed and haven't been saved. Uh, my favorite example in the Bible of civil disobedience is the Israelite midwives in Exodus chapter 1. You remember this? Pharaoh tells them to kill all Hebrew boys or else. What do they do? They don't kill Hebrew boys. No, they disobey Pharaoh. And he finds out. And he calls them back in front of them. And he's like, why didn't you do what I said? I mean, this is before they marched them out, you know, and off at their head. And the Hebrew midwives, this cracks me up. What do they say? Um, wow, these Hebrew ladies are really vigorous, much more so than the Egyptian wives. I mean, how does Pharaoh know? You think Pharaoh has any idea on childbirth? No. They're like, they have their babies before we get there. And so Pharaoh's like, hmm. I, I, I mean, they lie to him, right? Oh, they have their babies before they get there. At least I'm assuming so. But the next time you're ordered by a homicidal, genocidal maniac to kill people, then, you know, maybe we'll criticize the, the midwives in this. I'm not going to do it now. The apostles in Acts 4, they choose to keep healing the sick and preaching about Christ rather than uh, 
have the gag order suggested by Jewish religious authorities. Uh, modern times, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., nonviolent protests, uh, he had a very accurate understanding and application of scripture, and yet a Christian nation. Uh, so they use this passage to say, you don't know how to read your Bible. See, so you're supposed to submit to the government. And he didn't. And there's, I mean, those are recent examples. This is difficult. This requires a lot of humility. This requires prayerful discernment. And maybe also a lot of grace for people who maybe end up on a different side of the fence than we do. But we're not responsible to them, we're responsible to God. So we're going to follow what he says. No matter what we do, we do it with the intent of offering ourselves to the Lord and attempting to bring him glory. So Peter's going through here, like, here's how you live the good life in a non-Christian world. Abstain from sinful desires, uh, good lives full of good deeds, uh, live the good life in relationship to the government. And then he turns to this household code and he starts with slaves. Live the good life in relationship to your master. He says, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So we're going to have to work extra to discern how to bring this into our own life. Specifically, Peter is speaking to us a class of slaves. He's speaking to household domestic servants. And his instruction is regardless of their master's actions, whether they're kind or if they're not, they're supposed to submit and live a holy life. Now, the significant hurdle that we face in today's day and age is the one regarding slavery. And I want to be very sensitive to my African-American brothers and sisters because this text, too, has been used often to justify immoral and ungodly practices. It's been used to protect the status quo by Christian nations or nations that would say they were Christian. So in order to avoid gross misunderstanding, I always, whenever I get to this topic, I have a lump in my throat. But we have to mentally shift gears. Slavery in the first century Roman Empire was very different than the version of it that existed in the US and the new world of European expansion starting you know, with Columbus and moving on. In the Roman Empire, there was a wide range of slaves. There was household slaves, there were public slaves, there were tradespeople. Uh, these folks could be doctors, teachers, accountants, clerks, domestic servants, uh, serving in the trades. And, and then there were the slaves in agriculture. That was bad. And then the worst would have been the slaves sent to the mines. And that was a virtual death sentence. So uh, if you lost a war to the Romans and you were a POW, they would send you to the mines. 
If you were a criminal who had revolted or a really bad, bad criminal, they would send you to the mines because you weren't going to come back. The Romans virtually never based slavery on race. So big difference there between what happened here in the United States and what was going on here that Peter's uh, addressing. Slavery was such a significant part of the Roman Empire that some scholars believe 30% or more of the population in Italy during the first century was employed as slaves. That's a lot of people. And there was a path towards freedom. You know, if you were in debt and someone bought your debt, you'd become their indentured servants, servant, and then, you know, after a period of time, you were let go. Some people became slaves in Roman households because it was a path towards Roman citizenship. So they would serve for a time or, you know, they would save up money and then they would purchase their citizenship. So again, big difference between what Peter is addressing here and what was happening uh, all over the New World, and especially the United States, later on. One thing's constant. If you were a slave, massive power imbalance between you and your master. And so Peter is trying to make the most of a bad situation. Do these people have any other choice but to submit? No, they don't. But he doesn't want them to lose their freedom to worship Christ. He doesn't want them to lose the opportunity to bring good news of Christ back home. He doesn't want a slave revolt that will be ruthlessly crushed. And so he addresses them. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit. And here's the remarkable thing. In the book of 1 Peter, several times Christians are told to fear the Lord. Not just slaves, but just in general. Fear the Lord. Do you want to know who we are never told to fear? People. We're told to respect them. In some instances, to honor people. We're never told to be afraid of people. You can imagine that if the, the relationship between slave and master was probably built on fear. But fear is reserved for the Lord. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Peter's saying, slaves, you may feel powerless, but the one with true power is the Lord Almighty, the one you know and serve. And the reason you submit isn't because you're afraid of your master or because your master is really nice to you or not. You submit because you're a conscious of God and you want to please him. And what's commendable isn't the actual suffering like Christian slaves should go around looking for opportunities to suffer. He's not saying that. He's saying what's commendable is that you are so committed, this is verse 20, to God's will that your devotion to him overrides your desire for personal comfort. And that's the take home here for us. It has to do with our commitment. You know, if we're choosing to be comfortable over and above being faithful, we need to make adjustments. I mean, think about that in all the different facets of our life, whether that's at work or in school, relationship. If we're choosing to be comfortable over and above being faithful, 
That's where the Holy Spirit wants to go. Um, you know, in your pursuit of following Christ, there may come a time when you face a choice and the result of being faithful to him brings about real suffering. And I could end the message right here, send us all home depressed, but I don't want to do that. Because I want to end telling you about the grace of God in situations like this. How, how could Peter's audience ever do this? How, how could other Christians throughout the centuries in, in vastly different governmental situations or how, how could they ever, how could they ever, how could Peter ask them to do this? Here's why. Because Jesus has been there. He's with us. The unmistakable, unbelievable reality comes as this complete left turn in the text. If you're reading this along, you're like, he goes from talking about the government, he talks about slavery, and then he says this. This is, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. To this you are called called to be faithful, called to live out and live into the kingdom of God here on earth. And sometimes we might find the unavoidable consequence of remaining faithful to Christ is going to bring about actual suffering. And if you find yourself there, remember that you are in real good company. You're not alone. Christ has gone before you. He who bore our sins on his body on the cross. And even though we were like sheep going astray, we have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. You know, when it says, leaving you an example that you should follow, it's this imagery that's really profound and powerful. The imagery of, of leaving you this example, it's of a student, a kid, learning how to write by retracing the pattern of the teacher. Retracing the pattern of the teacher. Leaving you an example that you should follow. You see, we don't need a textbook on what to do, where to go, or how to apply this in our life. When we suffer on account of our faith in Christ, there's no grad school course we have to take. It's as elementary as retracing the pattern of the teacher himself. That's the grace. Jesus has done it. We can follow him. He's with us. He's for us. He's in us. All we have to do is retrace his steps, his pattern. And maybe that doesn't sound easy, but it's not meant to be. 
We can do it with the power of Christ and his Holy Spirit in us. And even when we endure suffering, the great paradox, the good news in Jesus, is that at the same time we can experience joy. Hope is the gift of God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, even though I could say that I've had some times in my life that have been challenging, I'm not sure I've suffered. And I know this isn't a, a contest that we're not comparing ourselves to others. But it does help bring perspective that maybe, maybe I'm too comfortable, Lord. Maybe we are. And I do know that I'm kind of a comfort seeker, definitely. And when things get rough, I look for the easy button. Help me not to do that when it comes to faith in you. Help us, Lord, to have great insight and discernment and courage, Lord. To know when we need to take a stand and to know when to stand down. And Lord, for any of us here today, whether it's at work or in the home or at school or whatever it might be, who are trying their hardest to follow you and that puts them in direct conflict with others, Lord, and they truly are suffering, I pray that by the power of Christ that you would strengthen them, that you would surround them, that they would sense your presence, your protection, your joy, your peace. And Lord, as we all try and figure this out, how to follow you in a world that often seems to be headed the other way, we pray that we would always choose to be faithful over being comfortable, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus.